Welcome to Grace Church. Glad to see some of the seats are filled this morning and are looking for that day when they are all full again. We welcome those of you that are at home, whether here in the city or anywhere around the world. I'm sure we have people watching in Cameroon and perhaps Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic perhaps. Uh, if you have uh, French-speaking friends, uh, they can now go to Grace Church Philly Fr French, Grace Church Philly FR, and uh, I believe uh, they will hear the French translation of uh, the sermon this morning. So uh, again, welcome. Uh, the other day, a friend of mine, a pastor in New York, wrote me and was asking me about, you know, the biblical necessity of gathering, since uh, so many venues today are going online out of necessity, and many of them will remain online. People are working from home, and many of them will continue to work from home. And uh, he asked me what I thought, and uh, I said, well, when I'm in Cameroon, I value and appreciate a WhatsApp call with my wife, who's thousands of miles away. But it's nothing like holding her in my arms. So I could appreciate the necessity of uh, a virtual gathering, but there's nothing like the reality of the real presence of God's people gathering to worship and we all should long for that day when that will happen again freely. We're in Mark chapter 13 once again this morning. We'll also be there next week. Mark chapter 13. Let me begin by reminding you of my brief outline of this text so that you'll know where we are in it uh, this morning. Remember verses 1 through 4 dealt with the uh, original uh, occasion for this discourse, the Olivet Discourse, as well as the original questions that the disciples had. When will these things happen? And what will be the signs of the end of the age? That was verses 1 through 4. Verses 5 through 15, Steve spoke about the general tribulations that lead up to the destruction of Jerusalem and which characterize the entire period up until the end when Jesus returns. That was verses 5 through 13. Last week we looked at verses 14 through 23, which gave us an instance of specific tribulation associated with the destruction of Jerusalem which in some way signaled that the end has arrived. As we'll see, we are living in the end of the ages. This morning we'll look at verses 24 to 27, what I call the final end, the end of the end, when Jesus returns. And then in verses 28 through 37, Jesus returns to the original questions in a reverse fashion. He deals with, first of all, are there definitive signs? 
and then he will deal with when will it all happen. This morning I'm interested in verses 24 to 27, the final end when Jesus returns. Listen to our text this morning. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Coming down the turnpike yesterday with my wife, uh, we could see the sky becoming dark in front of us, very dark. As it often happens when a thunderstorm is coming. It's something we always dread when we're out on a motorcycle ride, when we see those dark clouds coming. And pretty soon you're in the midst of a dark cloud. The sun is hidden and lightning begins to flash and the thunder of, uh, begins to rumble and then the downpour comes. Thunderstorms are an amazing display of God's power. When I read uh, the verses that we've read today, uh, they, they remind me of a thunderstorm. To me, a thunderstorm is a sign of what will yet to come. Because in one of these thunderstorms, when that sky darkens and those flashes of light and that thunder rumbles, instead of it being followed by the sunshine as it was yesterday, you will see the Lord Jesus Christ coming in power and glory. And I want you to think of that. I want that embedded in your mind every time you experience a thunderstorm from now on. That maybe in this thunderstorm, in this crackling of the thunder and the darkening of the skies and the lightning like stars falling from heaven, that Jesus Christ will break through the skies. And for some of you, for most of you, that should be a time of great joy, of great anticipation, because that sign of power is a sign of the deliverance of God's people. But for many, if you don't know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, then every thunderstorm you see should strike fear in your heart. Because it might be this thunderstorm in which Jesus breaks through the clouds and condemns you, assigns you to hell forever. As we look at our text this morning, by way of introduction, I want to make three statements about the times in which we live. Simple statements just to 
understand uh, the eschatology, the teaching of the New Testament on what we call the last days. First of all, we must always remember we are living in the end times. And we have been living in the end times since the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is what the Apostle Paul understood as he writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says this, he says, these things happened to them, to the Old Testament saints, as an example, but they were written for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So Paul says, as he lives in the first century, the end of the ages has arrived. The writer of Hebrews understood that the first advent of Christ introduced the last days. He put it this way in chapter one and verse one, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers, to the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. The writer of Hebrews said that God has spoken to us through Christ as we live in these last days. Secondly, the end times in which we lived are marked by tribulation and various cataclysmic events such as those described in verses 5 through 13 and in the destruction of Jerusalem. This entire age since the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is a time that is marked by tribulation. Jesus in our text tells his disciples that the final end will come in those days after that tribulation that the end of the end of the days, the end of the last days will come in those days after that tribulation, sometime after the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, in those days, the world as we know it will come to an end. Those days following the destruction of Jerusalem would be characterized as verses 5 through 13 tell us, by wars and rumors of wars, by kingdom fighting against kingdom and nation against nation, by the persecution of the people of God, the entire age will be marked by suffering in many ways. Verse 13 of Mark chapter 13 is an important reminder as a characteristic of the church age. And he says, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So Jesus says the entire age in which we're living in these last days will be a time when the world and the church are in conflict 
And as the church carries forth its mission of invading the kingdom of Satan by preaching the gospel and seeing sinners rescued from the clutches of Satan, as we are faithful to our mission, Satan will be faithfully persecuting the church of Jesus Christ. I mentioned last week as I read through the book of Revelation trying to get a better grasp of it, and I've been doing that, by the way, for 45 years, 50 years, and I'm still working on it. But I sort of think that the seals, the trumpets, the bowls that are portrayed in Revelation 6 through 16 portray in a very vivid, highly figurative vision what happens throughout the entire age of the church. The seals sort of portray how God allows, he controls, but he allows evil forces to attack both unbelievers and believers, but it's all under his control. At the same time as the seals, the trumpets and the bowls depict how God throughout the church age is punishing unbelievers and humbling non-believers and bringing them to himself while at the same time he is purifying his people, the church of Jesus Christ. And as you read through Revelation 6 through 16, you have these intermittent visions which tell us that in the midst of all of these terrible things that happen on planet Earth, God is always at work preserving a witness for the gospel in the midst of tribulation and in the midst of suffering. The third thing by way of introduction, and that brings us to our message this morning, is that there is a final end to the end times that is marked by the glorious return of Jesus Christ. Our text tells us that there are three things that happen. There is this sort of cataclysm within the cosmos that brings judgment on the enemies of God and his people, brings an end to the world as we know it. There's the deliverance of the people of God as God gathers his elect from all across this, this earth. And at the center of it all is the revelation of the power and the glory of Jesus Christ. These are not sequential events. These are simultaneous events, all happening with the coming of Jesus Christ in his power and his glory. We know it's been 2,000 years since Jesus spoke these words. And certainly there are many today, as there were in the first century, who ask whether it's a reality, whether Jesus will come back. You remember in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 1, Paul, or Peter said this. He said, this is now the second letter that I'm, that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. 
that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with, with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? When will it happen? Where is this? They go on to say, because the world seems to continue as it always has. Where is the promise of his coming? And Peter's response from the Lord is this. Don't overlook this one fact, he says, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. So in that terminology has only been two days since Jesus talked about coming back. And then he adds, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some men count slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It's gone on for 2,000 years. We have witnessed and experienced thunderstorm after thunderstorm after thunderstorm. Each one followed by a break in the sky and the shining sun where life went on as it was. And God in his mercy did not break through the clouds in those storms yet because he wants people to come to repentance. He wants the lost to come to repentance. He wants his people to come to repentance that they may not be ashamed before him at his coming. So when that sun breaks through as a believer, you say, that could have been the end. I need to get serious about living for Jesus Christ. Because the next time might be the end. And if you don't know Christ, and you went through that thunderstorm, and the sun broke through, you should say, I'm still alive. I'm not in hell. I can repent so that I'm ready for that next one when Jesus breaks through the clouds. The last part of the text we looked at last week, Jesus said, be on guard, keep watching, because the Son of Man will return in power and glory. There are three things that we will see when Jesus Christ returns. First of all, we will see the end of this created world as we now know it. Again, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Throughout the Old Testament, these types of phenomena within the universe, as the prophets spoke about them, or even as they were witness and experience at the Exodus, 
These are always signs of both God's judgment on sin and God's deliverance of his people. Many would say that the, the roots of what we call apocalyptic imagery, such as we read in Revelation and Daniel and Zechariah, that, that the roots of it are really in the Exodus, when God brings darkness and he brings blood and he brings plagues and, and the ground is shaken. All of these events where God shows that he has power over all of the powers of the universe. They're at his disposal. He can bring them at any time to bring judgment on his enemies and the enemies of his people and to bring salvation to his people, both the Old Testament saints whom he often delivered and the New Testament saints. I referred a few moments ago to the book of Revelation, which I think vividly portrays that. That the seals, the trumpets, the bold judgments, they all end in similar fashions. For instance, in the sixth and seventh seal, in Revelation 6 through 8, we read this. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its from its place. And then in the, in the seventh seal, then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there was peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So that's the end of the seal judgments. But the trumpets sound similar. In the seventh trumpet, God's temple in heaven was open. The Ark of the Covenant was seen within the temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumbles, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a heavy hail. And then the bowl judgments. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumbles, peals of thunder, a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on earth. So great was that earthquake, and every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. You notice that the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, they all end the same way which sort of indicates that these are not a sequence of judgments, that is seals followed by trumpets, trumpets followed by bowls, but that these are three different perspectives, three ways of looking at what happens during the church age until the final coming of Jesus Christ. 
The seals describe it one way. The trumpets describe it another way. The bowls describe it another way. They all end with this cataclysm in the cosmos and the glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think as you read them carefully, especially as you notice, in the sixth and seventh seal, and in the seventh bowl, both of them say the mountains and islands are taken away. Now, if they're sequential, it doesn't make sense. If the seals come first and the mountains and islands are taken away and the trumpets follow and then the bowls follow and the bowls say the trumpets and islands were taken away, it doesn't make sense how they can be taken away again. They were already taken away. But it makes sense if you understand that these are three perspectives of how God is dealing with the earth during the church age, all of them coming to an end with this great cataclysm in the cosmos and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This world, as you and I know it, will pass away. Peter put it this way. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And then Peter asks this question. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? And then he says, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Peter simply asked, if you believe this, that the world as you and I know it is coming to an end, everything is gone, it's dissolved. What sort of people ought we to be? in lives of holiness and godliness? It's a rhetorical question. Peter knows that you know the answer if you're a believer. But he also knows that you may not live up to what you know to be true. He knows that you may know that Jesus is coming, that the world will be dissolved, that everything that you love and cherish of a material nature will be gone. He knows that you know that. But he also knows that we may not live up to that. That we may cherish the things too much that one day will be dissolved and that we do not love enough the things, the eternal things that will remain. 
That's why when John said, do not love the world or the things of the world. Because if any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And then listen to him. And the world is passing away with its desires. You're living in a world, he says, that is in the process of perishing. It is moving toward that day when the clouds will become dark and the lightning will strike and the thunder will rumble and Jesus will come and everything of a material nature is cleansed, is dissolved, it's gone. Even prior to the destruction of Jerusalem, Paul knew that to be a reality. He was living in a time of persecution against the church of Jesus Christ. Paul saw the increasing evil of the power of Rome and its pagan idolatry. He knew what it was to be stoned and beaten and imprisoned for his faith. It was a time of tribulation as is the entire time in which we live. And Paul says this in 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 7. He says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For, he says... The present form of this world is passing away. This is not just advice for first century Christians living in a difficult time, though it certainly was for them. This is advice for every believer living in this age, which is an age of trouble, an age of tribulation. He's not telling men to neglect their responsibility to their wives. He's not telling people to disregard the fluctuating realities of sorrow and joy or to diminish the value of property or the reality that we're living in a created world. What he's saying to them and he's saying to us is we need to hold on to these things realizing that marriage is not eternal. And if I don't find my deepest delight and greatest joy in that which is eternal, I will never be the kind of husband I need to be. He wants to remind us that the fluctuating experiences of mourning and joy are not eternal. That will pass. One day it will be all mourning forever if you end up in hell. Or one day it will be all joy forever. 
when you end up in heaven. You will handle the sorrows and, and joys of life if you hold them lightly and hold on to what is eternal very tightly. This world is passing away. So Paul is saying and Jesus is saying, live for Christ first. First in your marriage. First in the midst of the joys and sorrows of life. First in the handling of all of your material possessions. First because this world as we know it is passing away. The second point. Be watching. Because you will see the power and the glory of Jesus Christ. That thunderstorm comes. <laughs> the dark clouds overwhelm you. The lightning comes like stars falling from the heaven. The, ru the thunder rumbles. The hail, the rain, torrentially comes down as it did yesterday. And through that, a burst of flesh, this glorious one on his white horse with the sword coming from his mouth, the word of God comes in power and glory. My mom loved to uh, listen to the Bill Gaither gatherings. The sing-alongs wasn't my favorite while she was living, but now if I catch one, an old one, it brings me to tears, not only because of the message, but because of her. But I can see her listening and hear them singing. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. When I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace, when he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land, what a day, what a glorious day that will be. There'll be no sorrow there, no more burdens to bear, no more sickness, no more pain, no more parting over there, but forever, I will be with the one who died for me. What a day. What a glorious day that will be. This is what Rolando read this morning. I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but, but himself. He goes on and describes the glory and the power of Jesus Christ. This is what we long for. This is what Paul called the glorious appearing of the great God, even our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Yes, he may come any moment. That next thunderstorm may be the one in which he bursts through the clouds. I'm aware there are some that say there are things that must happen before the coming of Christ, but I don't find that in Scripture. Some say the temple needs to be rebuilt. Some say the man of sin must be revealed. I read an article by one of my brothers, one of my friends recently, who was arguing that, you know, before the coming of Christ, Paul told the Thessalonians that the man of sin must first be revealed because they were concerned that they had missed the coming. And Paul said, no, no, no. Jesus isn't coming until the man of sin is revealed. So the question is, has he been revealed? And many would argue, as I would, that Paul is writing prior to the destruction of Jerusalem. He's writing probably under the emperor Claudius, who will be succeeded by Nero, who many of our church fathers who wrote and looked at the words of Jesus believed that Nero was that man of sin, that one who initiated the, the war to put down the Jewish insurrection. He didn't finish it, but he initiated it. The one who many would say burnt down Rome himself so that he could have space to build this enormous temple that he built with this enormous statue uh, of himself that people could worship. He blamed the Christians for it, of course, we know, and persecuted them, put them to death. Many would say that Peter and Paul died as a result of Nero's persecution. He was one of the many emperors who exalted himself as being God. And so the church fathers believed that Nero was that man of sin. He came. One of the Princeton scholars, B.B. Warfield, would say that it wasn't just Nero, but perhaps it was all of those Roman emperors that succeeded him who progressively became worse in their self-deification and their persecution of Christians. So what was future to Paul could just as well be history to us. I'm looking for the glorious appearing, the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm not looking for anything to intervene. I don't see that anything has to happen. Jesus Christ is coming, and it may be, though the weather predicts sunshine today, but it may be that next thunderstorm. The Son of Man, that one prophesied by Daniel so gloriously in Daniel chapter 7. He's coming with great power. We can trust he will triumph over all evil. We can trust he will win. The Son of Man, as prophesied by Daniel, is coming in great glory so that we will then, and we do now, fall at his feet and worship him 
He is the powerful and glorious one. Thirdly, we will experience the great gathering of the elect. We look for that day when he will send out the angels and gather the elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. The four winds is simply a poetic way of describing the entire earth, the north, the south, the east, the west. From the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven is simply another way of saying from horizon to horizon, the entire earth, wherever God's people are. This will not be a secret rapture followed by seven years of tribulation. This will be the great culmination of the ages, the final end, when God will finally deliver his people wherever they are. They may be in Nigeria or Cameroon or Mali or Dominican Republic or Puerto Rico or India or China or Russia. They may be persecuted, they may be beaten, they may be crying out as the saints do in Revelation, how long, how long? But Jesus will come. He will gather his people, no longer distinguished by race or gender or language or age. They are simply the elect, those who through the work of the Spirit of God and the preaching of the gospel, God brings to faith in Jesus Christ. God will gather his people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And as John wrote, and after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Our little multi-ethnic gathering of God's people this morning is a foretaste of what will take place when God gathers his elect from all the earth and they gather before the throne of Jesus Christ and worship together, not virtually, but in reality. But the question in closing, is if Jesus comes today, and he may, how will he find you? Will he find you as one who lives with godly stewardship, knowing that this world is passing away? Or will he find you as one who is consumed with the desires of the flesh and of the eyes and the pride of life? How will he find you? Will he find you as one who relies on his great power and worships him as the glorious one? Or will he find you as one who is 
self-reliant, and self-indulgent. How will he find you? Will he find you as one who will participate in that great gathering before the throne of the Lamb? Or will he find you as one whom he will cast into that lake of fire and brimstone which burns forever and ever? When that next thunderstorm comes, and it will, if Jesus doesn't break through, and you haven't come to Christ yet, and you survive that thunderstorm, repent, believe, receive God's offer of saving grace. And as a believer, if you survive another thunderstorm, Choose to live for Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, thank you. And at this moment, we know that Jesus is preparing a place for us. And that he will come again. Help us to live with watchfulness, knowing that this world will pass away, knowing that regardless of the difficulty of our lives, if we are in Christ, God will rescue his elect, knowing that Jesus Christ is coming in power and glory. And with John, we pray, even so, come, 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 Lord Jesus. Amen.